Hey, it's Liz Kelly, and welcome to The Ringer Podcast Network. Up on our site, The Ringer is breaking down the 40 best singles and albums from 1999, covering Britney Spears, The Backstreet Boys, Mariah Carey, and tons more. And to accompany that piece, we filmed our staffers discussing what they agreed and disagreed with from the article and debated what should have won. You can read the piece on TheRinger.com and watch the video at YouTube.com slash TheRinger. Hey guys, thank you for listening to today's episode of The Watch. Today was a fun mailbag pod that I did with a little bit of Greenwald and some Kaya too in there. We answered all of your questions. Andy was calling in from doing a little bit of editing work on Briar Patch. So we got to chat with him about that and ask him a few culinary themed questions. And then Kaya joined me and we talked about, gosh, a bunch of different shows from Game of Thrones or what the next Game of Thrones might be to uh, some music questions were in there, some what are we expecting, excited about for the fall. Uh, so a lot of good stuff in the mailbag today. Just a little bit of housekeeping. On Monday, Allison Herman's going to be guest hosting The Watch. She'll probably be talking about the uh, end of the first season of Euphoria, and I would imagine uh, maybe some Orange is the New Black talk. So she'll be ho- hosting on Monday. Thanks to Allison for filling in. I'm out next week, so no show next Thursday. And then when we come back on the following Monday, we will be diving headfirst into succession with all you Greg the Eggs. So we can't wait for that show to be back. I watched the first episode. It's fantastic. You're not going to be disappointed. So let's get into this episode of The Watch with Andy and Kaya and a mailbag. I need support staff to clear the room. Stand up and walk now. Hello and welcome to The Watch. My name is Chris Ryan. I am an editor from TheRinger.com and joining me on the other line, he'll fix it in post. It's Andy Greenwald. Oh, boy, this is a throwback, buddy. We're in the same time zone. I'm calling you from the parking lot at Anonymous Content in Culver City. Shout out shout out to everyone here. Yeah. I'm out of the desert for a minute. I got a reprieve. I got a, I, I had to fly out to the coast like John McClane. That's right. To Go out to the coast, the, get together, have a few laughs. Oversee the editing of the second episode of Briar Patch for reasons that are very cool that we'll talk about soon, but not on this podcast. <laughs> and uh, Is that because you, know, so you it, were it, uh, it, inserting a lot of Avatar IP into it and you guys just had to do a lot of, get, go down to uh, WETA in, in New Zealand, WETA? What I, reali- what, I, what I realized was because Cameron has left the marketplace dry for so long, there's a big desire on the part of the American um TV and movie watching public for more content about unobtainium. Yeah, yeah. You know, that is really the driving force behind what Rosario Dawson's character is doing in my TV show. And I think it's really helping to understand it as part of the larger Av universe. Did you see that he, you know? uh, that he th- congratulated Marvel with a phrase from the native Navi tongue uh, <laughs> <laughs> on their box office supremacy over, over Avatar? What, do you think that he makes, like, when his friends at is Paramount distributing that movie or whatever, like, when they come to visit him in his fireproof compound, and I'm not kidding, please read the New Yorker article about his fireproof compound. <laughs> it's amazing stuff, ago, yeah. Do you think he makes them address him in Navi? Like, is it just that at this point, they're not actually supporting his making five to seven more Avatar movies, but he's just so far down the Howard Hughes rabbit hole that they're just indulging him. <laughs> it's possible, man. So like, we're... listen to me, listen to me for real. Wait, like listeners of the watch, my <laughs> love, adore and trust. If you actually are looking forward to avatars two through six, holler at your boys. Like, I really want to know the story of a lonely Avhead 
who just needs to know what Rabisi's putt-putt enthusiast in outer space has been up to this last 15 years. It's, it right? is wild that this is how long it's taken because he's like been waiting for the tech to catch up with his imagination. I should stop <laughs> podcasting. Kaya, I'm retiring, and in 15 years, I'll come back when pod <laughs> tech has caught up to my vision. How about that? Sounds great. Uh I have a bunch of questions here. Some, a lot of them are very dialed into your personal experience right now. But then there are a bunch that are yeah. kind of pop culture, you know, pop culture yeah. savvy. Where would you describe your level of engagement with the culture at right now? Um, what is my level of engagement with the culture? Um, I've heard there are new films in the Spider-Man and Charles Manson expanded universes. Yes. I've seen neither of them. Uh, I am aware that there are entire new seasons of Stranger Things and Dark, two shows that have been very good to us content-wise over the years. I watched the first six minutes of Dark, realized five and a half of those minutes were a recap of the first season, and then said, gotta go to bed. I watched the first episode of Stranger Things and was like, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. Okay. I'm good for now. Which isn't to say I'm not going to revisit those things. I will say that spending 14 hours, like, you know, fully with the pickaxe in my hand and the content mind makes me less interested in narrative television the, you know than what the, I probably ever have been in my life. The number one comedy of the fall is, is when you move back to Los Angeles and you're like, honey, yeah. it's time to catch up on peak TV. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm so ready to fire up Chernobyl. You know, <laughs> I mean, if, if you're living in L.A., you know that. The Craig Mazin's glow up from like the Hangover sequels to Chernobyl to now trying to take over the the WGA like this is our, this is an unparalleled flex from my guy Craig. Um, one of the things that I've quoted many times on this podcast with you, my friend, and in articles back when I was a TV critic, was something that Mike Schur, creator of The Good Place and Parks and Rec, said to me early on when I came into this business, like a little bit snobby about like multicam sitcoms and why his shows were better or whatever, and. Uh, he said, look, people use TV for different things. Yeah. And you got to remember that. And now I am, I am Joe Popcorn collapsing on the couch at the end of a day. And I'm like, you know what? Just roll up this queer eye content and inject it into my veins. You texted like, me the other day. Live. You said, have you seen <laughs> Queer Eye? And I was like, yeah. No, I knew you'd seen it. We've definitely I recorded said, pods about up? Queer Eye. And you were like, I was saying, this show is really good. <laughs> Text. Are you just hashtagging everything text of 2015 for me at this point? Yes. I, I, it, queer Eye, just, it makes you feel good, man. It's just like, there's hope. There's hope. Um, so if, if you want like sofa TV, if you want popcorn TV, does that mean you're, you're going to bend Briar Patch to make it part of the Modern Family Extended Universe? <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, the number of decisions that I have to make every day that are specifically tied to making something that is narratively engaging in the year 2019 or 2020, I almost don't even want to be in that universe anymore. Mm -hmm. Because at the moment, where my head is, if I fire up an expertly made, lovingly crafted, bespoke prestige television drama, I am going to be in that world being like, yeah, that, that cereal box, they had to design that. Yeah, you had to, every background actor, like the showrunner had to approve of every single one of those people and have a comment about their costumes and their facial hair. You know, like every single detail. And so I just, I want the Fab Five to come in and fix it for me. I just want them to make the decisions, you know? That really, that really is where I've been. And then 
the other night when I finished Queer Eye, and I was like, I guess I'm going to watch comedians and cars getting caught, and then I stopped myself. Like it, it, it almost reached peak, peak laziness on my on my part. I, I enjoy like, oh, I comedians and cars getting coffee. I just watched the Rogan one, the Seth Rogan one, where yeah. they take a old cop car to Cantor's, which is I, essentially I, like what I do it. twice a week. But even <laughs> Jerry Seinfeld and Seth Rogan seem to be like, what are we doing here? Like Jerry Seinfeld tried to start off with a, doesn't it feel like we can't say what we want to say anymore and push the limits? And Seth Rogan's like, yeah, I guess so. And then they just like sit there and eat fries. And I was like, what the fuck is happening? Like, how is the guy who made Seinfeld and the dude who made fucking Longshot sitting at a diner table, drinking coffee and eating fries? And this is a show on Netflix. Listen, you, you, you got to understand that the other thing motivating me every day while we're making the show is we don't need more TV shows. Like, I am well aware of this, you know? So at the very least, let's try to have some fun. You know what I mean? Like, let's. Let's let's try to have some fun here because we. I mean, this is actually you saying that you drive to campers in a cop car twice a week. Maybe the oldest thing anyone's ever said on this podcast. But, um, yeah, I think yeah, the oldest thing anyone's ever like, said on this podcast is definitely like, "Have you watched Queer Eye?" Um, we have a couple of questions that are uh, dialed in for, just just for you, and then once you jump off, I'll, I'll answer a few more. The first one okay. I noticed this too, and I was so happy that uh, Christy Josberry writes in to ask, in Veronica Mars, the new season of Veronica Mars, without giving anything away about what happens in the new season of Veronica Mars, right. in Veronica Mars, Patton Oswalt says, you're in the briar patch now, to Kristen Bell. Wow. Did you feel like he was secretly highlighting the upcoming USA Network show, Briar Patch? And are we all in the briar patch now? Wow. What a great question. Boy, that's hashtag brand building. I love it. First of all, I want to thank, what was the questioner's name? Uh, Christy. I just want to thank Christy for thinking I watched Veronica Mars because <laughs> I, I, people are being very nice to me at the moment and being very forgiving with my lack of uh, cultural engagement. Um, do I think it was a shout out? I do not. I do not. I would like to think that we are all uh, living in the Briar Patch now, but those of us who are living in the Briar Patch are mostly just sitting around uh, Video Village with Rosario Dawson talking about what drinking this amount of chlorophyll does to our bodily function because <laughs> the altitude and dryness over there is real and she is a strong advocate for drinking multiple bottles of green-tinted liquid every day. Huh. And she's got, she's got Alan Cumming on it, talking about it on Instagram. It's, uh, it's a glamorous business. I do not think we're on the Briar Patch. I hope everyone is in it in January or February only on the USA Network. <laughs> you gotta love the USA Network. I think you should bring... Are we all in the briar patch now? That should be the new you're in the great game now, which went from something I that I believe Peter Diglidge said in a very straightforward accent to something that you and I took and twisted into something Begbie would say in train spotting. Oh, I thought it was something that that your version of Belfast Bono said on stage <laughs> to George H.W. Bush during the TV tour. I, um, I joked often in the room that I would put into the script like in episode nine or ten that the real Briar Patch was the friends we made along the way. And I'd like to think that even if it's not actually in the script, that all of the watch listeners are are those friends. We have two culinary questions. One comes from Michael Ratty, who asks, Yo, Chris, is your chicken still wet? Any new recipes? (laughs) This definitely sounds like Michael wants to know if I smoke dust. Uh, (laughs) We can answer that one. And then there is another one. 
That is for you, Andy, from Scott Nash. Where is the fabled chicken recipe that Andy promised he would post to the Facebook group? Wow. What's, how, how is what's, your chicken cookery these days, buddy? Uh, the slow cooker here is got cobwebs on it. I'm not going to lie. We've been doing Taco Tuesdays. We have, we have some nice okay. things going on in that department uh, going on this summer. My wife makes a lovely cavatappi. <laughs> Uh, with what department? <laughs> taco department. <laughs> the taco department. Um, okay. All right. So we we've been doing some summer cooking, but I would say that we are mm. probably uh, we have been a little bit overindulgent this summer and going out or getting takeout. Uh, for okay. you, Andy, what's what's where are you at? Because do you have a kitchen in your apartment? Yeah, I got a house, man. Um, I got a kitchen. I got a I got a rice cooker in there, which I am being dragged for mercilessly by Eva Anderson, the number two writer on Briar Patch. Sometimes the guy, sometimes the kid just wants some rice. Because you know? you're not supposed I'm to have a rice grain. cooker or because you just eat too much rice? rice? I eat probably too much rice. I'm <laughs> grain positive, you know? Um, but I do. Okay, are we really doing this? Like, I, I, the thing that made me feel better about being there was that I could throw some chicken in a marinade and just have it and then throw it under the broiler. Like, you got to get, are we doing this? Are we doing this? Yeah, you gotta man. Get your, you got to get your chicken, get your chicken size. If you're doing it outside on the grill, you want the bone in. If you're doing it inside, bone out is okay, right? And then get a whole bunch of mustard. Like I like a whole grain mustard. Throw in some vinegar, maybe rice wine vinegar. Mix in with that. Some honey. Recently, I've been using, instead of honey, I've been using maple syrup. Yeah, I love maple syrup. On the chick- yeah, it's great. Then some soy sauce. And then, then you can get freaky. Sometimes, for thickness, I add some miso paste. But you don't want too much soy miso. You don't want too salty, right? And then... You could throw some citrus in if you want. Throw in some garlic powder if you feel like like it. But otherwise, that's going to give you a good base. You whisk that up. You pour it in a Ziploc bag over the chicken. You leave it for 24 hours. You're not going to be unhappy. You're going to be fine. And it's not going to be wet. So It's not going to be wet. That, that is the thing. is that like I, I tend to work... My main marinade for chicken is water. You know, And it's not a popular marinade. Uh, I tend to just... <laughs> <laughs> I like to baste the chicken. You're like... <laughs> in like a thick water gravy? Yeah, just like I want to get as aquatic as possible with my chicken. So <laughs> you can tell that one of us knows what he's doing when it comes to chicken the other. Uh, Kai, which one do you think sounds better? El Pollo, uh, what was, what was Mo- El Pollo Mojado. El Pollo Mojado or Andy's Miso Chicken? <laughs> Definitely Andy's Miso Chicken. <laughs> Don't knock so, it until you so try 400 it. 400-degree oven, 400-degree oven, put it in there for like eight minutes, and then you might want to crank up the broiler to get some color on it. You're going to be fine, guys. And then, yeah, and then you're just going to grab a liter of Poland Spring. <laughs> yeah, just gonna... you, but the thing is, you pour it over yourself. <laughs> um, Andy, you're having so much the, fun in the kitchen. I had, I did have a good cultural question uh, here, which is Kyle Glazer wants to know if we uh, could talk about some of our favorite X Men comics in light of Jonathan Hickman's new run, which Andy brought up uh, a little while ago. Oh yeah. So did you get House of X number one, the Jonathan Hickman book? I haven't yet. I'm very excited to. I've heard great things about it. Um, and I'm going to. I'm going to go to a comic book store and get it. But I haven't read it yet. Get it and, on that um, app, dog. I, I want a physical copy, man. I'm going to go into. I'm going to support my local shop because I do go there often to get like Babysitters Club comic adaptations for my 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 child. So <laughs> uh, and and for me, honestly, they're pretty good. So what's my favorite? I mean, I think I said this when we talked about it the other week. Like, I, I could definitely talk about the classic runs. Like, I love Chris Claremont's X-Men. This is the stuff I grew up on. Everybody knows the Dark Phoenix saga, but there was a, but the story is just after that. So 
So like when Paul Smith was drawing X-Men, so it's like 79 to 83. And I believe this is a graphic novel collecting some of those. I forget the name of it. But those were really good stories. That's when Kitty Pride joins the team and some weird stuff happens in the background. I, I love those stories. But I got to say, that it's Grant Morrison's run, which is now, I, I mentioned it on, on the pod um, the other week when we talked about it. This, this is when he took over New X-Men and renamed New X-Men in, I think, 2000. And for me, it's the definitive X-Men run because it takes in everything that had come before and updates it, comments on it, and takes it to the stratosphere and then leaves. And every part of what we love about X-Men, hated and feared, a school for, for outcasts, the space operas, the interpersonal drama, and then a whole lot of interesting, weird, new, future-pushing ideas crammed in on top of it. And the only thing that falters is the art because it was supposed to draw, you're supposed to do it with Frank Whiteley, genius artist he'd worked with before, who worked with Mark Millar on The Authority, but Frank Whiteley's a very slow artist. So there's a lot of like replacement-level issues in there. But honestly, once I read that full run, and you can get it all collected in hardcover or softcover or apparently on the app, I think you can take a 20-year hiatus. I might be wrong. I'm sure people will say there was good stuff since then, but for my money, that, that's Yeah, because Joss Whedon's run was after that, right? That's true. Yeah, Joss Whedon's Astonishing X-Men with John Cassidy. Beautiful art. Good stuff, but I, I, just not as definitive to me in terms of like what this stuff could be and what I always loved about it. Yeah, okay. Uh, Andy, the last thing I was going to ask you, and I'm putting you a little bit on the spot, but since it's 1999 Music Week, and 1999, among a, a few years in the late 90s, was another crucial year for you and I. To you, th- That was sort mm-hmm. of when you first, I think, made your baby steps into professional music writing, and I, I followed suit yeah. shortly after. And I uh, remember distinctly... Was 99 the year we interviewed Mogwai? Yeah. Um, yeah, February 99. Because Come Blue On, Die Young came out that City. year. Yeah. Yeah, so we yeah, were... You, we, you, you, you and I shared a room at the Chinatown Days Inn, I believe. Holiday Inn, yeah. Yes. Holiday Inn. Yeah. Then we interviewed Mogwai at a studio, and then we went to watch a Rangers Celtic match with them or something on the Upper West Side. With Andrew Bojan, yeah. Correct. Uh, so I just wanted to ask if you had any favorite albums or songs from 1999 that you wanted to shout out. Oh, that's so mean. I you want me to go first so you can think? This question. Um, I mean, go first. I'm going to have to like post this on the Facebook group or something. I'm going to have to, this is going to derail my editing for a day. Okay. So my, uh, my top five albums from that year in no particular order were Mogwai's Come On, Die Young, Wilco's Summer Teeth, mm-hmm. Jimmy Eat World, Clarity, uh, Jay-Z Volume 3, and built a spill, keep it like a secret. It's a pretty strong list, my friend. Yeah, and I would I, say some of the favorite songs from that year uh, would be Blink 182's "All the Small Things." Yes, Low Fidelity All Stars "Battle Flag," which is technically late '98, but didn't really start to break until '99. Yep, Fountains of Wayne Denise. Wow, <laughs> the Dismemberment Plan, the City. <laughs> I'm really having some feelings right now. I bet you are. And and you will know us by the Trail of Dead, Mistakes and Regrets. I saw Low Fidelity All-Stars at like the Scala in London in 1997. <laughs> Were you like, this is it? I, yeah, I was just like, hello, mate. Anyone caught any ecstasy? <laughs> hello. Somebody That's gave you right, an Excedrin and you were like, oh, I'm sorted, <laughs> mate. I'm just buzzing. <laughs> I was asking for more water than your chicken. Yeah. I was just like Sonny Purdue. Like, <laughs> oh, poured all over my body. By the way, not Sonny, but Frank Purdue. Sonny Purdue is someone else. So if you can't think of yours off the top of your head, you can just post yours to the Facebook group and to Twitter. Uh, 
I'm going to post something. I love the thought of it. That was the year I started at Spin. And that was like, it was just such a different landscape for all of music and media. And this, this, whenever you say Year in Music 99, I think about the December, because the Year in Music issue is always January. So the 99 issue is the January 2000 issue of Spin. But the December 99 issue of Spin was back on the cover, I guess, for Midnight Vultures or something like that. And uh, it's still the most amazing story I've ever had in, in journalism because we were making this issue and it was a pretty jam-packed issue because there was also a lot of ads in it for both cigarettes and like Rio MP3 players. Yeah. And I remember we were closing the issue and all of a sudden someone comes running up the stairs uh, from the advertising department and they all huddle in uh, Alan Light's office, our editor-in-chief, and they come out and it's like they rang the bell like some the, the milestone had been reached and they were like, <laughs> advertising just said they sold too many ads we need more editorial for this issue. We need to crash in more stories. Because I mean, there was too imagine? many pages. Yeah. So they added like a 15-page fashion spread and an eight-page story about the art show at, at the Brooklyn Museum called Sensation that had a painting done with like elephant dung that Rudy Giuliani was pissed about. We were adding stories about art exhibits in New York to a national magazine. That might be my most late 90s story that I have. And let let, let me remind you, I attended a Low Fidelity All-Stars concert in London. Your reference to uh, having advertisements from cigarettes and and Rio really makes me remember like 2004, (laughs) lighting up a camel light and firing up my Zune with five songs on it. (laughs) And just being like, the future is now, baby. Nothing I am doing will ever change. Do you remember Cosmo.com, yeah. which is the short-lived website that would just bring you things? Yeah, um, you could get like so Wu-Tang Clan CDs and Budweiser. My guy, I was sitting at Spin on Lexington Avenue when it, when it came online, and I was like, okay. <laughs> I went to Cosmo.com, and I had delivered to my cubicle a candy bar, a Macy Gray CD, and Ghostface Killer's Supreme Clientele. Just bring it on by, friendos. I can't believe that wasn't a successful business strategy. (laughs) I know. Chris, we need to... Okay, so we officially, I think, when I'm done with this, making the show, and I'm back, back in the mix, like early next year, we need to do an early 2005. (laughs) We need to just... You mean the watch? We need to just own... (laughs) Yeah, fair. I think we should pivot. I think we should own, (laughs) own these gray hairs that they can't see since they took us off YouTube and, uh, and just really, really become the best slash worst versions of ourselves. I have one last question for you before you go. This one should be a little bit easier to answer because you're nothing yeah. if not a committed bibliophile. Uh, oh, yeah. The, the streets need a summer book update. Egg Boy uh, asks, <laughs> what is this year's Every Man a Menace? And Oof. you and I are just so lost in Texasville right now. We're just so deep yeah, in the cut true. with McMurtry. I don't know if I can yeah. really see the flowers for the dogwoods here, man. Like, I I think I there's another question I got, which is basically where do we, where do you start with McMurtry? I would say we're probably both in agreement that it's all my friends are going to be strangers, right? Yeah, I mean, I avoided McMurtry for years because I am not a big Western fan, and so I've never even read his most famous book. I've never read London Dove. I didn't know that he mostly just wrote about going on long beer fueled road trips between Texas and Hollywood and what it was like making movies in the late seventies. Once you told me that, I was on board. And I, I think All My Friends Are Going to Be Strangers is a masterpiece. Yeah. It's just one of the best books I can remember reading. All of his books are connected. So if you like 
the serialization that you've come to like in prestige television, you're going to like a bunch of them. But I think that's the one to start with. And then you can go backwards, like moving on, you can go forward to somebody's darling. I'm for some reason reading Cadillac Jack right now, that it's you driving a Cadillac named Jack. I mean, <laughs> this is where I'm at. Yeah. I would say if people are looking for something crimier, it's never a bad idea to revisit um, this French crime writer I love named Jean-Patrick Manchette. Um, we, I've talked about books by him in the past, but I read a, I read one of his other novels from the 70s. It's called Three to Kill. It is just this slim, savage little volume that is both about a dude getting revenge and also late capitalism. So, which, by the way, Every Man and Menace kind of is too. So yeah. I, I highly recommend that. But that's not exactly a, a, a hot... And we should say, in case anybody missed the few episodes where we talked about her or when we talked to Patrick Hoffman... It's never too late to read Patrick Hoffman's Every Man a Menace, which is still one of the best crime books that's come out this decade. Let's, what are our favorite crime books from 1999? No, that's for another pod. Let's save that content. <laughs> I'm going to let you get back to the editing bay. <laughs> I just want Kaya to wake up now, and we'll, we'll go back. I promise. <laughs> okay, Andy, thank you so much for calling in. Good luck with editing. Good luck being back in the snake hole. Hopefully, I will come join you down in the ABQ really? sometime this August. Chris is coming. SPF 1 million, my guy. Get me, get me the green tinted juice. <laughs> Later, man. Yeah, we'll, we'll have a big bottle for you, my brave. Today's episode of The Watch is brought to you by Discount Tire. When was the last time you thought about your tires? Tires are what make the difference in how your car feels and drives. Since 1960, Discount Tire has been keeping customers safe by taking care of all your tire and wheel needs. With over 1,000 locations across 34 states, their main focus is your safety and the safety of everyone else on the road. Discount Tire provides tire rotations, balancing, free flat repairs, free air checks, and more. And because safety is so important, they provide free tire safety inspections. Discount Tire also has the lowest prices on the best and largest selection of tires and wheels. They'll even make personalized recommendations for you based on your zip code and driving preferences. Whether you need an air check or a set of tires and wheels, Discount Tire can help you get back on the road with peace of mind and change to spare. Visit DiscountTire.com to shop, research, and purchase your tires today. You can even make an appointment to skip the lines. That's DiscountTire.com. Discount Tire, they'll get you taken care of. All right, thank you so much to Andy, as always, for checking in from post-production, current production, pre-production. He's just in every phase right now with Briar Patch. Uh, it's always fun to hear from him, obviously. Kaya, producer Kaya, say hi. Hello. She is going to join me for the rest of this mailbag episode. You guys sent in some really good questions. I was very intellectually stimulated by these. So let's just jump in right now with a question from Joreen. Kaya, what is Joreen's question? Doreen wants to know if you have an early MVP prediction for Succession Season 2. Okay, so I was I was very much smoking pure Kendall with a piece of wolf art hanging on the wall last, last season. I, I'm a vowed Kendall fanatic. I think that Jeremy Strong's performance is amazing, and I thought his storyline was incredible. I am a little bit... I, I don't want to give anything away. I've watched the first episode of Season 2... Jason Concepcion and I are going to be doing an after show for Succession on, on the regularly scheduled platforms, YouTube, Twitter, uh, where we'll be talking about the episodes. That'll go live after the episodes of Succession air on Sundays, and then you can also listen to it within the watch on Mondays, I think is the plan. But without giving anything away, I think anybody who's watched the trailers can tell that we actually have a upright and working uh, Logan, which we didn't have 
for the first half pretty much of last season because he had suffered a stroke. You know, he's in episode one, but at the end of episode one, he he, he falls ill. So I, just to have Brian Cox firing on all cylinders right from the jump, I think puts him in position to be the early MVP prediction for Succession Season 2. Thank you so much to Joreen for the question. How many steroids is uh, Logan Roy pumping himself with? That's a great question. That's a <laughs> Kaya McMullen follow-up. I don't, I, it, it, so far, I have not seen any uh, any of the steroids. going. <laughs> no PEDs yet. <laughs> we'll see. Yeah. Only time will tell. <laughs> um, all right, next question. Kevin wants to know, what show, either now or in the horizon, will be the next The Office or Friends? A comedy show that even decades past its finale is still binge-worthy for multiple generations. This is a great question, Kevin. I've been thinking about this a lot because, you know, as I talked to uh, Allison, Herman, and Lucas Shaw over the last couple of weeks in our Streaming Wars conversations, I think you've seen maybe even an outsized amount of value placed on shows like The Office and Friends. I personally, like, you can't really say because you don't know the actual numbers of of, of what kind of viewership The Office and, and Friends takes up for Netflix. But I think that you've seen, like, a tremendous amount of, like, importance placed on them for these new services like HBO Max, whatever the Warners, if, assuming that Friends goes under the HBO Max flagship or The Office going on NBC Universal eventually, that you've seen like, that. okay, well, we've got that coming. Even if it's in three years, we've got this coming. Will people still be watching on their like 50th rewatch of The Office in a couple of years? It's hard to say. Or will there be a show that sort of takes the place of these shows? And if I had to vote for one, and I might be biased because I actually already like it and have already watched all the episodes, it would be How I Met Your Mother. So why is that? I think that the reason, one of the reasons why The Office and Friends are, are popular Aside from like the the low grade comfort level of the the sort of action and the performances in general, and just it's it's sort of like a nightlight that is just engaging enough but not too demanding. I think that there's an, an attraction to the sense of place, for lack of a better term. Now, even though a lot of these shows are shot on soundstage, is a really great show, no matter whether it's a sitcom or a prestige drama, has a sense of place. And I think that people feel like they are in a friendly, comfortable world when they are watching The Office or Friends. And I think that they would feel the same way or they did feel the same way watching How I Met Your Mother. Now, How I Met Your Mother, in case you didn't know, is a show that ran from about 10 years from 2005 on. And it starred Jason Segel, Allison Hannigan, Colby Smulders, Josh Radner, and of course, Neil Patrick Harris. And it was phenomenal. I just love that show. I mean, it, maybe some of the humor has not aged the best in over the years, and, you know, I think that the later seasons are a little bit hit or miss, but so are the later seasons of Friends. It's just that you just kind of like get into the idea that you have these 400 or 500 episodes or however many episodes of Friends there are to watch. The thing about How I Met Your Mother. Oh, were you going to say something, Kaya? No, go oh. ahead. Sorry. The, no, I was going to say the thing about How I Met Your Mother that I think might bring it back around for new generations of, of viewers is that we probably will start getting nostalgic for 2005 pretty soon, if we're not already. In a few years, that will be almost 10 years ago. There will be certain quirks like, oh, they're looking at a BlackBerry, but they're not quite addicted to like Twitter and smartphone and Facebook and stuff like that. There are certain elements of it that are recognizable, but there are certain things that almost seem quaint. And I think those are two things that friends in the office have going for them too. Do you like How I Met Your Mother, Kaya? Um, it's okay. I think the main guy in it is kind of smarmy. Which one? Uh, Ted? Yeah. Okay. Did you watch? How many would you say you watched? 
Oh, a decent amount for sure. Okay. Like at least a couple seasons. And do you think like for you, is there like a finite amount of time, times that you can watch Friends or The Office? Yeah, I would say so. I used to be a big Office watcher back in the day, as I've mentioned before, but like I've kind of like gotten over that and like I don't think I've watched an episode in like two, three years. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. You're gone cold turkey. You're really off the, off the sauce. Well, I replaced it with Curbed. Oh. And I feel like in this conversation of like what is going to become the comfort watch, I feel like shows like Seinfeld and Curb get overlooked a lot. Yeah, well, I think part of it is that, so I think Seinfeld is on Hulu, and for right. whatever reason, people aren't like talking about, oh, I've been watching this show on Hulu nonstop. I don't know why. It's something about the Netflix ease of use that people seem to be really attracted to the friends in office and turn the app on or turn it, go, into the, go to that site and just let it play. But there's tons of library shows on Hulu that people could be doing the same thing for. Maybe it's the commercials if you don't have Hulu That's Plus. That's true. That's true. It could be that. So yeah, there's a we have a couple of questions or a, a good question a little later on in the mailbag about pre-1990 TV. So maybe we can get into a little bit of that there. Let's go to these questions from Ollie and Pat, though. Okay. Ollie Thomas wants to know, Amazon and Netflix are looking for the next Game of Thrones with their Lord of the Rings and Witcher adaptations. Do you think that they can rival Thrones' success? Will we see another show match Game of Thrones' level of acclaim? Or, with so many streaming services, are the days of water-cooler TV shows finished? Right, so that's Ollie's question. And then Pat wants to know what IP is still out there that could be blown into a mega property a la the MCU, Star Wars, etc. So we are about to get this tidal wave of world-building shows, obviously, from historic materials to The Witcher. As as mentioned, we have a Game of Thrones prequel coming. There's a Lord of the Rings show coming and tons of other stuff that I can't even think of off the top of my head where people have bought a series of books or a beloved piece of intellectual property, an old sci-fi thing. I think HBO Max is going to be making a Sisters of Dune uh, show about the Benny Gesserit. Like, There's like so many of these kinds of shows starting to say nothing of what stuff we don't even know about, whether it's like an expansion of what Castle Rock could be and, and getting more into Stephen King. There's a lot of this stuff coming. The question is, is any of this stuff going to actually break through the mainstream? So rather than address it as like water cooler, which I think is a conversation that Andy and I have been having for about two years now. So whether or not there's going to be another water cooler show is the idea of like, whether something like game of Thrones, which was met with, outside of the George R. R. Martin fan base, a degree of skepticism, I think. I mean, even for me, for as much as I love that show, I don't think I watched the first season live. I think it was something that, like, around episode six or seven, or maybe even by the end of the first season, enough people have been like, man, you got to check out Game of Thrones, that I did so. And that was because I think I was just, like, a little bit like, okay, but, you know... Do I need another Lord of the Rings-style sword and shield fantasy epic? And it turns out I did, and it turns out, obviously, that that show meant a lot to people who had otherwise no interest in that kind of storytelling and appealed to the people who were, like, the base, the people who obviously were huge fans of the books and wanted to see the execution of these stories that they had been reading about for decades. So that's what makes... Game of Thrones a unicorn is finding something that appeals outside of the already established fan base that's there. So for Kaya, I imagine you're not like counting the days until you can find the next Game of Thrones, right? 
No. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's just like, I feel like people keep asking that question. How do we emulate this? How do we emulate this? And I mean, is it even necessarily going to have to come from another fantasy adaptation? Like, what if it's something, what if the next thing that comes along is something like Lost? Yeah. I mean, and and that had elements of sci-fi to it, obviously, but felt a lot more like a television drama even a network television drama in retrospect, and I mean that as a compliment, than it did this sort of like, here's a different, like, you know, we, we have to go through all these different quests to find out who these different people are, and there's going to be this clash of kings, and there's a lot of stuff going on in, in Game of Thrones that, like, on the if you just read it on the side of the box, you might be like, eh, I don't know if it's for me. But then when you see the show, you're like, holy shit, this is, this is incredible. I feel like, too, is almost like a snowball effect to the point where, like, I feel like a good amount of people started watching Game of Thrones solely because everybody's saying you gotta watch Game of Thrones. Yes, and that is the that is the thing that is going to be difficult is that as these as these shows uh, migrate to f- the far rungs of streaming services that require a fee for entry, even though HBO obviously does as well. I think HBO is something that you can add onto your cable subscription. Something that like if you you can f- probably get your parents' login or something like that. People find ways to watch HBO shows. But as shows f- wind up going to these, okay, I got to spend another 12 bucks for this. I got to spend another 8 bucks for this. I got to spend $1.99 per episode for this. I don't know that we're going to have one that's going to have the word of mouth the way that Game of Thrones did. Right. Okay, so moving on, our next question comes from... I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong. Nikila? I think, yeah, Nikila. Nikila. So she wants to know more about Screener Gate. Okay. Uh, I was kind of on the fence about whether I was going to talk about this. It's not really like a thing, right? This is basically, it's a complicated situation. But what Nikila is referring to is something that came up on Twitter the other day when the critic Emily Vanderwerf mentioned that an upcoming show was not going to be sending out screeners for for pre-release coverage, essentially. So... To give you guys an idea, in case you don't know, usually what happens is when Stranger Things is coming out or when, uh, you know, Big Little Lies is coming out, the network sends out a, a number of episodes, whether it's the whole season or two episodes or three episodes. Sometimes they're in various stages of being totally completed in terms of their visual effects and audio. But for the most part, they're like, here's a couple of episodes to give you either a sense of what it is or the entire picture of what it is or a taste of what it is. And you kind of work from there. And what Emily is referring to, I believe, I think that it was, I don't know if we ever got to like the sort of like official bottom of it, was Mindhunter. And the idea that uh, Netflix was not sending out screeners for this second season of Mindhunter, which is coming out on August 16th. Now, I will admit that it does seem like there hasn't been a tremendous amount of a push for Mindhunter season two, considering the fact that I think people like that show. David Fincher directed a bunch of the episodes. He's directing a bunch of the episodes of this season. There's like a kind of feeling of Charles Manson in the air right now. Charles Manson's going to be making an appearance, at least on Mindhunter. We know that from the trailer and from the IMDb credits. So there's all this stuff to be excited about for the show. And there hasn't been like a huge pre-release push for it. Why do you think that is? Well, I think that honestly, the problem with it is, is that it calls into question the usefulness of pre-release coverage in the first place. Uh, And, you know, you can get something where, Maybe you get all the episodes of Fleabag and you have critics saying, this is the best show on television, bar none. You have to stop everything you're doing and make sure you make time to watch it. But ultimately, I think that the discourse is different than the 
hype cycle. And it's not even like the hype cycle, like you're going to be a cheerleader for a show as much as if Netflix, for instance, is indifferent to buzz before a show launches on a Friday, then it's really in their best interest to let everybody in the gate at the same time, rather than a few people who then could turn around and say, don't waste your time. Now, in the movies, if they don't screen something, it means they've got a turkey on their hands, right? Mm-hmm. So typically that would suggest a poor quality. I, I am guessing, just based on who's involved in Mindhunter, that that can't possibly be the case. But that being said, it, it is an interesting question. And it, it goes towards sort of a larger conversation about the role of how do we talk about these TV shows that are being watched in so many different ways? And this is something that Andy and I have discussed. This is something we discuss a lot among the Ringer editorial staff, especially for Netflix shows that you're basically trying to find a happy medium between diehard fans who are going to probably binge the show as fast as they possibly can. And for lack of a better term, like normal TV watchers who are like, yeah, if I like it, I'll try and watch a few. I might binge it, but I might not binge it for three weeks, you know, and Mm -hmm. people who are like, oh, I'll watch an episode a, a night or a week. And it's really hard. So do you do you give away things that happen at the end of Stranger Things to those people? Do you give away things that happen at the end of Veronica Mars to those people? Or do you talk about it in this imaginary incremental way? It's a really fascinating conversation made all the more kind of complicated if you're not also getting access to those episodes before anyone. Right. I wonder if this is really just like Netflix is almost like internally testing how like how reliable and strong they're algorithm is that it will get people to watch and like how like the power in simply just like putting something on someone's like up on the banner of the homepage of Netflix and like seeing someone's willingness to try it out. Yeah, Rather- I, I, you're absolutely right. I mean, I would just say that that Netflix is not stingy with screeners ordinarily, you know, that they send out Stranger Things, they send out Narcos, they send out, you know, they send out episodes of shows if you ask for them. Right. This is just this is just seems to be an exception, and I, I don't know that could have something to do with the creators themselves. All right. Uh, Doug Stamper wants to know what's the movie or TV show you guys are looking forward to most this fall. It's Mindhunter. <laughs> <laughs> it's Mindhunter. I like, I can only be me. No, I'm I'm very excited to see. I think Mindhunter had to do a lot of work in the beginning to establish the tone and the interest, the subject matter for what it was going to cover and how it was going to cover it. And now that I think it's like up and running, I cannot wait for the second season. And not only is Fincher directing, but Carl Franklin directed some episodes. He directed One False Move and Devil in a Blue Dress and is an amazing filmmaker. And Andrew Dominic, who has kind of just been in and out of the mix for the last 12 years since Assassination of Jesse James in 2007, also made some episodes. So I, I can't wait for Mindhunter season two. Nice. I tapped out after like the first two episodes, but I think I'm going to give it another I think a lot of people did. All right. Chase Gibson, what's got a chance to be a cult movie in 15 years? How do cult movies audiences grow in an era of instant access where we're not forcing VHS bootlegs on each other more easily or not at all? So Chase is not referring to movies about cults. He's obviously referring to cult movies, basically movies with cult followings. And that was a phenomenon of the pre-streaming era. And more, I think I I ascribe it more to the 80s and early 90s than I do, and obviously the 70s and 60s. But I think by the time the 2000s rolled around, it was more and more rare for it to happen. But it's essentially often a genre movie 
that's overlooked, if not released at all sometimes, or barely released at a, 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 upon its completion. And then somehow, through word of mouth, past hand-to-hand, VHS copies, DVD copies, they develop this reputation among a fan base that kind of far exceeds what it received when it was first released. And so, you know, like, my f- favorite cult movies are Repo Man, or They Live, or Evil Dead, who are these, like, these really weird... 80s movies that just kind of like came and went but then lived on in VHS and lived on by like your cool older brother passed it down to you was like oh you gotta see Repo Man if you like this and I think the last time I remember this happening although I don't even know if you would call it a cult movie was Mallrats did you ever see Mallrats? no so it's this uh, Kevin Smith movie that he made after Clerks that I remember seeing in Western Massachusetts in 1996 or something like that and immediately going back to see it again because I was just like, I love that movie so much. And it, I think in in the canon of Kevin Smith, it's I think it's appreciated. But, you know, in the wider world, I don't think anybody is like, man, Mallrats is amazing. But that's the, like the last one I remember being like, this is almost like my special movie and my friend's special movie. How something like that happens today, I don't know. I mean, because you got movies. So, for instance, there's a movie I love from earlier this year called Standoff at Sparrow Creek, which is kind of this... Reservoir Dogsy movie about a militia that has, they think they have a rat in their ranks and they're trying to basically ferret that person out. Now, Standoff at Sparrow Creek is essentially using a lot of the same tools to publicize its existence that Hobbs and Shaw is. Hobbs and Shaw just has more money behind that push. But I guess that's that's the kind of a, the movie that could be a cult movie at this point where it doesn't get much of a wide release. It goes to iTunes, but doesn't maybe necessarily take off there. And then you just kind of hope that people catch up with it who like, you know, like a tense thriller. But like, that's really the limit because like right now, especially with stuff like Netflix, if you've got a movie and it winds up on the front page, it can be as popular, if not more popular than anything in a multiplex. Um, not Jeff Prost. <laughs> Jeff Probst, yeah. On a scale of Raptors, Sixers, Game 7 to Godzilla's chances on the debate stage, how excited should we be for John Goodman as a TV angel- televangelist in The Righteous Gemstones this August? Hashtag deep cut. So not Jeff Probst trying to really dial up some Chris-centric references here, I think. <laughs> um, Godzilla for President was a short-lived campaign. I think that like the actual presence of 20-plus Democratic candidates made it sort of impossible for for Godzilla's candidacy to get off the ground. Killed the bit. Yeah, I know. Uh, I don't know how to properly like put this within the ranking of what, or the, the rating scale that Jeff suggests, or not Jeff, but I would say I've watched a few episodes of Racist Gemstones, and while Goodman is great, Walton Goggins is is like on another level. He is Godzilla running for president in this show. Check out uh, the interview with oh, yeah. the creators. That's right. We did an interview with Danny McBride, David Gordon Green, and Jody Hill on The Watch last week. So definitely check that out. Nick Woodetaker wants to know, if you could have any character from another world travel into the dark universe for season <laughs> three, who would you choose? Uh, I would definitely choose Roman from Succession just because of he's already got some priors with blowing up that satellite. Mm. I just think that he could do some great things in the dark universe. <laughs> and make it all look like it wasn't his fault. Absolutely. Um, Broom Kid 
wants to know, what are your top eight favorite episodes of TV in 2019? This was very specific number, Broom Kid, but I, I like <laughs> thinking about episodes because if you're watching stuff at the clip that we're usually watching stuff on this pod, it sometimes gets hard to remember episodes. So this forced me to do a little bit of a, a self-audit. Here are my top episodes. I'm not sure if this is eight. Uh, obviously, Barry's Ronnie and Lily episode uh, with the little kid was phenomenal. Uh, Fleabag episode six of season two is the best thing I saw on television this year. Dark episode six, also an endless cycle. Uh, I don't want to give anything away from Dark, but I thought that that was the episode that really brought together the best parts of season one with the best parts of season two. Uh, True Detective, Hunters in the Dark, a.k.a. the Pink Room episode, That at least that last moment, but I thought that that was sort of the best of season three and really incredible job by Scoot McNary, that, that episode. I really liked 05 Bonnie and Clyde, the Euphoria episode, the one after the carnival. I don't know if that's considered like the best Euphoria episode. It gets super weird talking about Euphoria. Like everybody's like, yeah, did you watch Euphoria? Yeah, okay, cool. Uh, High Maintenance, MASH, the first episode from this past season. That was uh, fantastic. Fosse Verdon, Who's Got the Pain, the second episode from Fosse Verdon, I thought was really great. Game of Thrones, A Night of the Seven Kingdoms, which is the best episode of the last season of Game of Thrones and has some of the best writing the show ever had, I thought. Andrew Drake, in the aftermath of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and The Ringer's epic Tarantino week, it was clear early on that Tarantino was a lottery pick level pop culture talent. Mm -hmm. What current young creatives would you say are worth a top pick in a hypothetical pop culture draft? This is pretty easy. I think that Phoebe Waller-Bridge is, is yeah. uh, lock number one. She it's uncontested. acted and wrote Fleabag, wrote season one of Killing Eve and still has a huge part to play in that show and is now doing rewrites on the new James Bond movie. So I think that's a pretty safe pick. I see you also have Greta Gerwig. I do also have Greta Gerwig. I mean, why not, right? Lady Bird, and she's got, I think she's like going to be up for Oscars with Little Women. So shout out to her. I'm very excited for that movie. All right, PJ wants to know, do you have any recommendations for any TV shows made before the 90s that are still relevant or enjoyable? Great question, PJ. We don't really talk about any television before 2012. Not yet, at least. Like, yeah, right. Well, once we get back into the, the How I Met Your Mother renaissance, I'll be right here. But uh, this is a great question. Pre-90s TV that might still be relevant or enjoyable. I uh, predictably will say Miami Vice. It's good both as a time capsule and also, it's just like the production value is really, really high. It's a little different than most TV today, I would say. But the f you don't have to watch all of Miami Vice. The first five episodes they did, the pilot, and especially the two-parter, Calderon's Return, it's like a really nice, almost like a miniseries. And so I would highly recommend anybody, if they've never seen it, I think it's on Stars. It's streaming on Stars if you have that. And uh, it's fantastic stuff. And then I would also check out Hill Street Blues which is a cop show from, um, gosh, I guess like the early, early 80s. And I would recommend, you might be a little over your head if you start it at season three, but the first episode of season three was written by David Milch, who would go on to write Deadwood. Uh, we would work on NYPD Blue and do Deadwood and uh, John from Cincinnati and Luck, and obviously is one of the great TV writers. He wrote an episode in the first season, the first episode of the third series, third season rather. It's called Trial by Fire, and it's, riveting. It's really, really good. It's It, it kind of looks more like 70s movies than it does television. Uh, and I would also say, I really like The Golden Girls. That's a, that's a show that I don't know. 
if it'll ever have like a friend's office kind of thing, but is just a really good ambient show, a sitcom show, and it's actually quite witty and well-written. I know a few people who like Golden Girls. Do you, do you ever fire that up? Do you have Hulu and fire that up? I've never watched an episode, but... Okay. I think a, you would I, enjoy it. Okay. I think it's like sneaky popular, though. All right. We are going to end in honor of The Ringer's 1999 Music Week. We're going to end with a musical question. Matt Lynch wants to know... Chris, what have you been listening to this year? Jeez, Matt, thanks for asking. Uh, so I really don't have like a, oh, Friday, it's the new releases program going anymore. I spent a lot of my life being pretty pretty on top of everything that was coming out in a, any given week and listening to the radio a lot and trying to be up on music as much as possible and listening to a lot of mixtapes and stuff. I think that my probable over-reliance on Spotify and streaming platforms has made it so that that's just kind of like, even though it was easier than ever to listen to new releases, the constant access to all music ever uh, has kind of made it so that my listening like choice preferences have gotten pretty eclectic. So just like a kind of random assortment of what I've been listening to this year. From this year, definitely the Sharon Van Etten album is easily the best thing I've heard this year. But I've also been listening to early PJ Harvey, Rolling Thunder era Bob Dylan, the German dub techno label Rhythm and Sound. Do you just like dial up a playlist on Spotify of that. It's really good work music. It's really good just to have it on the background. Although sometimes it sounds like you're inside of an aquarium. Uh, I've been listening to a bunch of playlists that are focused on specific years uh, for other work stuff. So like 1980, 1985, and 1990, but that was all related to Stranger Things and True Detective. I have a 300-song playlist made up of songs that Earl Sweatshirt played on his Red Bull radio show, which is the most like 2018, 19 thing you can possibly say. A bunch of playlists that were made by the record label the Numero Group and then just like a bunch of Beastie Boys Jason Isbell Max Richter Derek and the Dominoes The Cure New Order Spoon it goes on and on music I like it music is good yeah it's great (laughs) Kaya thank you so much for uh, reading me the questions thank you guys so much for sending in the questions we will definitely hold on to the rest of them and maybe sprinkle them in over the next couple of weeks. Just a little bit of house cleaning. So I'm out Thursday on vacation. Then we're back on Monday and we will be diving headfirst into succession. I think what the plan is going to be is this. So like what we're going to try and do is on Mondays, we'll do a little bit of weekend news, whatever kind of is coming up, whether it's a movie or whether it's just like some movement in the the uh, the pop culture universe. And then we'll do succession on Mondays. That will be... Maybe some conversation with other people, but mostly my conversation with Jason Concepcion that you can see also that night on Sunday nights after Succession. But we'll take the audio from that because it's basically a podcast. We're not going to be doing a lot of the flat circle true detective stuff we did with exhibits, crime scene exhibits. So we'll do that. We'll do Succession on Mondays. And then on Thursdays, what we're going to try and do is make it more of a like clearinghouse for other shows that are on. So if you guys have shows that you're watching that you want us to talk about, please let me know. But, you know, with Gemstones and Mindhunter and a bunch of other stuff that's coming on, I think we just needed to be like, okay, on Thursday, we're going to run through like two or three shows and just do a check-in. So Monday will be like more news and succession for the next couple of weeks. And then Thursday we'll do The Terror or Lodge 49 or anything else that's kind of like kind of What about Chernobyl, Chris? Are you ever going to talk about Chernobyl? I'm holding out. Maybe I'll do that for Christmas. I'll do a five-hour Chernobyl pod for Christmas Day. I mean, Uh, it is a holiday show. That's right. Kaya, thank you so much. Thank you guys so much for your questions. We'll talk to you soon.